you know, what I want to know is is how how does one get involved in doing rock work as a woman? Do you really, really want to know? Or do you just want the rehearsed response that I always give? What would happen if we chose to really tell the truth about ourselves? Like if we really, really just told the real truth of our lives. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm saying that it's my truth. You're listening to him. I had really started to question if there was a God. Is there really a God? My insecurities and my doubts and my fears had really taken over. And the drive home back to Black Mountain, I just could not wrap my head around what was going on. And I kept trying to talk to God or the universe or whatever I thought was out there. And I started having all these feelings like maybe there's not a God. Maybe there's nothing that is in control of this. Maybe this is just how it just is. Maybe it's my own fucked up way of being that I just can't seem to to make the right choice in anything. And I felt so defeated that it was it was almost unbearable. But I, I couldn't stop and get a six-pack. I couldn't go smoke a bunch of cigarettes or a bunch of pot or take a bunch of pills. Like, you know, years before, Gail had told me that drinking was no longer an option when you think about suicide. And I knew that I couldn't kill myself. I was too scared because I still had enough Southern Baptist guilt inside of me that was like, well, you're going to go to hell if you do that. Well, I'm in hell. I'm in hell. We get back to Black Mountain and Tina and I went up the stairs and was just scared to death because this person was there. The restaurant had already closed. It was very late. And we came through the door and that little Pomeranian with the missing leg came yipping and yapping down the hallway. And it, we had a couple of bedrooms, a spare bedroom in this place. So Tina had her own little bedroom and she said, I'm just going to go to bed. And I said, okay. So I go to my bedroom and there's this redheaded woman who is in my life, totally in my business. And she 
asked me, you know, why are you so late? It was like an interrogation. And I sat on the edge of the bed, and it was kind of dark and turned a lamp on. And I said, we had an accident. And I filled her in on what had happened. And, and it was like, it was almost like she was like a dissociated person. But she had a glass of red wine by the bed. And I started noticing a pattern after work. She would grab a bottle of wine out of the, the wine case and bring it upstairs. And she always had red wine on her lips, which kind of made her look like she had on lipstick. <clears throat> but that red hair and those red lips... It was kind of scaring me, like it was. She was just really intense, and so I filled her in what had happened. It was like she was half-ass listening, not really paying attention. And then she goes on to say, "Some man's been calling you. This man has been calling you nonstop on the phone, and I've taken a bunch of messages, and I, I laid his number over there on your desk. And so I looked, and it was this big phone number written like with a black Sharpie, had this man's name, and she said, he's persistent, and he wants you to come out and build a family. I don't know. It sounds like work. I don't know. She was real short and real bossy and... So I just kind of, you know, I was like, real, I'm real tired. Let's just, let's just go to sleep. And so I went into a sleep and the bedroom in this apartment, there were these two big windows that were old fashioned. The building was built like in the, uh, maybe the late 1800s, early 1900s. I'm not quite sure, but it was a very old building. And these windows opened with these metal hinges and these metal handles, and they opened outward. And the glass had wiring, kind of mesh in the glass. But I remembered I opened one of those windows, and the street light from behind the building kind of shined through into the room. It wasn't too irritating, but it, I just needed to let air, you know. And so I was in a deep, deep sleep. And all of a sudden, it was like something woke me up. It wasn't a noise. It wasn't any kind of gesture. And when I woke up, I was on my side. And I saw... A set of legs standing right beside me. I was facing the wall and I looked up. I didn't move my head. I didn't move my body. I used my eyes and I looked up and it was her. And she was nude. She didn't have on any clothes. And she was holding her chef knife. She had brought all of her chef knives in a case from Nashville. And in this moonlight street light, it was shining on her. And she was holding that knife in between her breast, like under her chin. And she looked down at me and she said, you're mine. Well, I'm thinking, am I dreaming? Like, I really thought I was having a nightmare. And I kind of, I kind of made a cough like am I awake am I is this real and she took the knife and she kind of 
put it under her chin and kind of put the point of it under her chin and kind of turned the knife a little bit. And she said, you're mine and don't you forget it. Well, I just closed my eyes and my heart was going to come out of my body. And I thought, that's the fucking devil. And it was like that red hair. And in my mind, it was like, she's a red devil. Well, the next morning when I got up, she was already gone downstairs to the kitchen. And I got Tina and I said, listen, and I told her what had happened. And of course, Tina just cracks up like we started laughing because this was the most fucking fatal attraction insanity I mean, listen, I have been through some stuff through my drinking, but I had never encountered anything like this, even in my drinking, even in my wildest, craziest times of my life. I had never encountered anything like this. So Tina and I were just, we got to get out of here. And I said, let's get our stuff I'm going to go talk to the girls. And so I went into the cafe and there was a server named Melissa and Ruth was there. And I pulled them to the side because Red Devil was down in the kitchen downstairs. So now there's three levels to this building. There's the downstairs full-fledged restaurant kitchen. There's the main floor in the middle which is the cafe with the 60 chairs and all the tables. And it has a service kitchen and there's a dumb waiter that comes up to there. Then there's the upstairs apartment, which has an outside door, a separate entrance. Well, I got Melissa and I got Ruth and I said, look, Tina and I are going to leave and go down to Charleston. I have to get away from this person. She's scary. And I said, y'all just, they had my phone number and I said, keep me informed, but I have got to figure out a way to get her out. And they were like, okay. And I said, I just need y'all to really be my eyes. I need you to be like a spy. I need you to understand that this is not good. So they were on board. And so Tina and I, we had a bunch of dirty clothes, you know, from working. And so we got all of our laundry together and and Red Devil comes upstairs and she says, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just getting my laundry together. Where are you going? And I said, uh, well, Tina and I are going to go to the laundromat and wash all of our clothes. And I said, and then we're going to head down to Charleston. What? And I told her, I said, the homeowners gave us their beach house for a week and I'm going to go down. I just need to go and think about some things. Well, let me tell you what. She went crazy. We're in my bedroom and she started crying and screaming and saying, you're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere with her. And she was insinuating that Tina and I were together. I mean, anytime people are gay, like if it's a gir two girls together, people just think you're together. It's so fucked up. I hate that. I hate that part of being gay because... You know, if somebody sees you out in the world with a female, they assume that you're sleeping with them. And I think it goes that way for males, too. And it's really fucked up. But I kept telling her, I'm not with Tina. Tina's my best friend. 
we worked very hard on this project and we're going to go and we're going to do this because it seems like you have control of this restaurant and it seems like you're liking it. And I was really trying to, to pacify her with words of encouragement and, oh, you're doing such a good job and I thank you so much. None of that mattered. The next thing I know, she punches me in the face she punched me in the eye and she blacked my eye and I could feel my face. Well, my reflexes, and I had never in my life as a sober human being, I had never laid a hand on another person. When she hit me, it was kind of like this basketball game one time years ago when I was in high school. I took my thumb and I pressed it against her throat against the wall because this person had no idea who I was, where I'd come from, and what I had inside of me. And with that thumb, I pressed her throat against the wall and I looked her in the eye and I said, don't ever touch me again and she was crying and screaming and I said stop and I said you've got to stop calm down and I kept trying to calm her down and she was flailing and next thing I know she's in the bed and she's snotting and she's screaming and it was unbelievable it was like she was in the fetal position and was in this like mourning state of just like a baby, I'd never seen anything like it, and I could not grasp it. I couldn't wrap my head around it. And so Tina and I, we got the hell out. We got in my truck. I had the dogs. Poor Lulu and Little, they're looking at me like, what the fuck? So we get in the truck, and Tina and I look at each other, and Tina looks at my eye, and she just completely bust out laughing. <laughs> and she goes, she blacked your eye. And I said, I know. And and we started laughing. I had to laugh to keep from crying. I had to laugh to keep from killing myself. I could not deal with any one more thing. One more thing was going to send me over the edge. And, you know, there's this, this thing that you can't call the police, okay, when you're a gay person in a domestic dispute. Not at this point. Okay, maybe now, maybe things have gotten a little more enlightened, but that would be kind of like a bank robber tripping on the way out of the bank and breaking their leg and then trying to sue the bank. I mean, it wasn't it, there, it wasn't in my even realm of thinking to call the police against this person. She hit me. She blacked my eye. But, you know, I turned around and pinned her against the wall. I didn't hit her. I wanted to beat the shit out of her. But I just walked away from it. And we went to the laundromat and I was still shaking. And I called this phone number of this man because I thought before we leave town to go to the beach, let me just call this number because I needed to line up some more work just in case I had no idea what was going to go down with all this. And I just, I needed money because I just, I was scared to death. So I call this number and this man answers and he's very official. 
and he told me that he had a house out in Sapphire Valley. And he would love me to come out and look at these three ponds where he's got these geysers and he wanted them to float to float around and have a light in them and blah 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 and he's telling me all this and I'm like well give me the directions and so I said are you there now and he's like yeah it'd be a great time to come so I said okay so Tina and I we drive from Black Mountain to Sapphire Valley which is near Lake Toxaway took us a while to get there and so we finally found the address and we're going up these this driveway and it's these beautiful rhododendrons and it's you know it's really mountainy and really quaint and very beautiful and and so we see this one pond over to the left and it's not like a pond it's more like a little mini lake it's like not it's bigger than a pond I said, well, there's one, and then we drive up this long meandering driveway, and there's another one, and then we go on up a little further, and there's the third pond, and these things are huge, and so we get all the way up to the house and park the truck, and Tina is wearing, like, really short, kind of daisy blue jean shorts, and it's, it's, it's pretty warm outside. It's pretty hot outside, and so... We we get out and we're walking over to this door and I looked at her and I go, well, who knows what's behind this door? Kind of joking because everything is so crazy right now. It feels like the world is just spinning out of control and that everything that, that I do, it, it just like some other creature appears. And so... We laughed and we knocked on the door and the door opens and it's this tall, older man. He was probably about six, five, and he looked like Jerry Stiller, George Costanza's dad on Seinfeld, except he was very tall and big. And he says, girls. And he opens his arms and he embraces, he grabs both of us and pulls us both to his chest and gives us this big hug. And we're like, hey, hey. And we're trying to get off away from him. And I said, I'm Jill. And he's like, well, hello. And I said, this is Tina. Well, hello, Tina. And he's looking at Tina like a pork chop. And so he says, well, let me call my wife. And he yells, Marilyn. He yells her name. And here comes this woman. And she's got like kind of dyed, kind of reddish blonde hair. And these people are older, you know, they're, they're up there. And she's just dripping in gold. And she's wearing white pants and this kind of orange, summery kind of sleeveless shirt. And she comes and she's very reserved and she looks us up and down like she is just looking straight at white trash. And it was so uncomfortable. But here's the thing. I've been through that so many times in my life of landscape and working with wealth and feeling their judgment. I know exactly how to do it. I know exactly how to be 
And so I, you know, complimented their house and what a beautiful setting and la, la, la. It's like a script. It's almost like a memorized script that I can just pull from within. Well, I could tell she was bored with our little niceties. And so she goes, I've got to go do something. So she goes on and he says, well, come on, girls. Let's walk out to the shed. I've got a little dinghy. And I'm like, what the fuck is a dinghy? I'm not real boat etiquette. So we, there's this small little boat and he wants us to take it down off these hooks and carry it. So Tina and I put this fucking boat on our shoulders like two Amazon women and we go walking down this trail all the way back down. He goes, I'd like you to go out into the, one of the ponds and find the, the geyser and you could possibly unhook it and bring it to the shore and we can take a look at it. And so Tina and I were walking down the trail and he's behind us and we're we're just almost like, it's like we're in a movie or we're in Alice in Wonderland. And we're walking with this boat and I said, what in the world? And she's like, how in the world do you find these? How do they find you, Jill? I said, I don't know. We get down there. We get in this little thing and we paddle out. And we find the damn brass-headed geyser. And I pull it up, and he's yelling from the sidelines, like, did you find it? Where did Unhook it. And I'm like, okay. So we unhook the thing, bring it over, and I said, look, I said, why don't you let me take it with me and let me think about it? Because I didn't want to tell him I dreamed this shit, you know, because it comes to me in the night. I mean, it's like a vision. And I knew if I told him that might be a little weird. He seemed a little conservative, but he goes on to tell us that he is a big-time tennis player, and he plays tennis all the time, and he's 86 years old, and he's fit as a fiddle. And he looked pretty strong, you know, his his arms and legs. You could tell he was an athlete. And uh, so, you know, we talked and stammered around and finally got the hell out of there, and I took the, the thing with me, put it in the back floorboard of my truck. So Tina and I take off to go to Isla Palms to get down to Charleston. We get to this house. We finally get down there, and the house is great. And the people, you know, had left us their key. So we go in, and these people, they had something to do with the waterbed world in the 80s. They were either the founders of or the first something-somethings to do with waterbeds, and they vaguely mentioned this whole waterbed thing. We go in this house. It's like a five-bedroom house, and it was like the 80s. It was very bizarre. All the decor, it was like it just stopped in 1984 or something, you know? There were waterbeds in every single bedroom, and Tina and I were just laughing our head off, like, Oh, my God. They were all like king size. So she picks a bedroom. I pick a bedroom. And we're just like in this crazy town. Like, can it get crazier? Yes, it can. Never question because it can. Well, we go and we find a grocery store and we get some food and we kind of, we just go to the beach every day. And that's all we did was just go to the beach, lay, swim, meditate, do nothing, read, 
try to get it together and we we discussed how we were going to I said Tina you got to you got to help me here cuz you know Tina was a big support to me Tina was an old soul she was 20 years younger than me but her parents had had their own businesses and she'd kind of grown up in the the entrepreneur world and her parents had divorced but they her father had gone on to become a big uh, concrete contractor up in DC and done like big parking decks. He was very successful and her, uh, but her parents had had a little cafe in Key West at one point. So she kind of grew up in a world of, of knowing that it's the ups and downs of, of business. It's not like you just go to a job nine to five, but she was a very funny, sweet, kind person to me. And she was really the only friend I had at this point because I had cut myself off from AA. I had cut myself off from my Atlanta friends. I barely stayed in touch with Gail. And I had really gone down the rabbit hole of some severe depression. And Tina was like the only person that could sort of help me out of that. And so I was very, very grateful that I had her there with me and that we were able to take that week and just kind of get grounded again. And I said, you know, we need to just figure out a way to get her out. And maybe I should go to the police, you know, and I and it, it we kind of planted the seed of we just need to, to go to the police I didn't know which other way to turn. I didn't know what my legal rights were. I didn't know anything. And I was, you know, I was too broke to go get another attorney because they're just a piece of shit. I'm sorry, but they're pretty much a waste of time and money. Well, we came back. And when we got back, I was very hesitant to get into any kind of conversation with Red Devil. So Melissa and Ruth, the two servers, they said everything kind of went okay. She had calmed down. And so during this time, Tina was like, I got to get back up to D.C. and I'll, I'll be back in touch. And so she leaves and now I'm there with Red Devil. And so I just tried to just work, put my nose to the grindstone, don't cause any drama, be nice, and just, you know, it was like a tippy-toe situation. It was like dealing with a time bomb. And so one day, I was in the service kitchen upstairs where, you know, we serve out the window to the food. The servers grab the plates and go take them to the tables and all that. So I was in there, and I heard it was later in the afternoon, maybe about three. And I hear Red Devil talking to somebody, and I hear a woman say, is Jill here? And she said, yeah, can I help you? Because she was very possessive. She wanted to know who everybody was. And, you know, it was like they couldn't get to me without going through her. And she said, yeah, just uh, go tell her it's Anne. And I need to, I'd like to talk to her. Well, I had a really good friend named Anne from Atlanta. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like her voice. So she comes back. She goes, there's a woman here that wants to see you. Your name's Anne. And I said, okay. So I came out, and there was this woman, this brunette, very sweet, kind of look, Susan Sarandon-type looking woman. You know, pretty put together, uh, present, 
And she says, hey, and she shook my hand. She said, my name's Ann Bales, and I'm from the North Carolina Department of Revenue. And I said, hey, and she said, can we sit down? And I said, sure. So we sat down, and fortunately, the restaurant, it was kind of during that downtime, like 3.30-ish or something, and not many people. And so Red Devil sits down at the table also, all ears. And she says to me, she starts pulling out this folder and she said, I've got some papers I want you to look at. Um, it looks like we've got a little problem here. And she pulls out all these forms. And she says, is this your signature? And I looked at it, and it was my name. But it it didn't look like I signed it. It, it kind of looked like my signature, but not all the way. And she said... Um, these taxes, uh, these never got paid, and you are very much in the hole here. And we've sent numerous letters about all of this, and I looked at her, and I said, oh, no. She said, Who, who's your bookkeeper? Who's your accountant? And I said, it was a girl that was working here named Suzanne. She said, well, obviously, it looks like somebody cooked the books here and you owe a lot of money in back taxes well see I had turned all of that over to Suzanne for those several years that she was going to take care of all the bet all the books and the taxes because she worked for H&R Block right and my oh I <laughs> I think I did laugh, and I go, well, what else is there? Well, she looked at me, she was very serious, and she said, what I'm saying to you is that any day you're going to, oh, you're going to come to the door, and it's going to have a lock on it, they're going to levy this, and they're going to take all your assets. She said, my advice to you is to get everything that you have out of your name, she said, today, she said, you need to put the bank account. Well, then I, I stopped and I said, can I tell you something? She said, sure. And I said, I was in a lawsuit and I don't know what compelled me to tell her this, but I said, I was in a lawsuit. It's still lingering. It's just bullshit. I did this huge, huge fountain for this big company and they're based out of India and they owe me over a hundred thousand dollars and my life savings went into that and they never paid me they paid me a little dribble here a little dribble there they maybe paid me maybe close to fifty five hundred dollars and she stopped and she said give me their information and I said okay and she said if they owe you they owe us and she said, I'm going to do some research and we can go after them. What well, was the first time in years that I had had any kind of glimmer of hope? And I said, really? And she said, yeah. She said, really and truly, if they owe you that much money, then that's our money. Now, I didn't know owe near that much in tax, but it was probably around 25000 somewhere in that range. She said, but in the meantime, 
you need to get everything into someone else's name. The lease, the bank account, anything, any asset you have. And so she says, how about your vehicle? And I said, my vehicle's paid for. She said, good. And so she looks across the table at Red Devil and she said, are you too close enough that you could just put it in her name? Because Red Devil had introduced herself as the manager. And Red Devil looks at me and she says, you know, you could put it in my name. It's only going to be temporary. And that way, you know, everything will be safe. And I, I was in a panic and I didn't... I knew I couldn't put it in Ruth's name. She didn't even have a bank account or probably didn't even have a social security number. I didn't know anything about anybody. I I stammered. I sat there. I stammered. And I said, okay. So that day, I put the bank account and the lease over into Red Devil's name. A.K.A. Red Devil. And knowing inside of my gut, which was having a heart attack. How does your gut have a heart attack? It can. But I did it because I was thinking, well, if they come in and levy everything, I will, I'll just, I won't have, I won't even have my clothes. She said, they'll, they'll put a padlock on your apartment and the, the restaurant and everything. So I just did it. And I knew deep down that this was not a good thing. But then I kept thinking, I don't know anymore what's a good thing. I don't know what's best for me. I don't know anything. I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if I'm just a really crazy, dysfunctional, fucked up person who is so wounded that I will never, ever be able to make a decent decision. Is my picker broken? I can't choose correctly. And so my mind was just like, it just felt like it was going to explode. And I went ahead and did this, all of this paperwork and all of this legal stuff in order to save what tiny shred of dignity that I thought that I had. Hammered is recorded and produced in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. It's narrated by Jill Haney, produced by Maggie Briggs and Jill Haney, and with sound design, editing, and music by Alexander Rodriguez. Our beautiful artwork was created by Lauren Caddick, and we'd like to send a special thanks out there to Minnie and Robin. You can check out our website, podcasthammer.com, and follow us on social media for updates.